but it's a joyous time whenever we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a family, as a church family, as a covenant community. We want to do some more praying this morning, um, praying for various needs and petitions in the life of our congregation, and I want to remind you of, of, of some of them, but before I do that, I want to point out two, uh, two visitors that are with us this morning that just, I would just like to highlight and uh, welcome them. We have Jordan, Jordan Jones. She's back from Baylor. Um, Jordan, we did not have a chance to pray for you when you left for Baylor, so I'm going to ask you to come up here. I'm going to be praying for you as you are going to, to be away and, and for the next four years. Um, yeah, we want to be praying for you that the Lord will give you wisdom, would grow you in his knowledge as he is growing you in all kinds of ways, um, academically and intellectually. We pray that the Lord would have your, his hand upon you. Also this morning, we have um, another friend. I have a, a, a friend from Romania uh, who is visiting us uh, for a few weeks. Uh, he's here in Austin, Bogdan Negru. He is an alumni at, from Emmanuel University, where our deacon Samuel Echevria is currently serving at. And uh, we, we want to welcome you, Bogdan, and uh, pray that God's blessing would be upon you uh, in this next few weeks that you're here in Austin. Friends, uh, I want to also encourage you to be praying for those who have been affected by the storms and the fires, um, for those who are affected by the disaster that has hit both uh, Bastrop and South Texas and other parts of, of Mexico as well. Pray for those who are serving over the next few weeks with disaster relief efforts. Pray that as they serve in helping others, they might have opportunities for the gospel and that the gospel will be clearly heard, especially in this time of, of disaster. Um, but pray that the Lord would uh, you, you do his work during this time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll have a few moments of silence, and I'll pray for us and for Jordan as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we bless your name, for all creation declares your praises. Father, everything you have made, you have made for your glory. And this morning we gather here to exalt your holy name. Father, you have redeemed us from death and sin. You have brought us to yourself. You have made us a new covenant community. Father, this morning we are gathered in your name to ask and, and, and declare that we need we need you to, to intervene in the problems of the world. Father, this morning we want to lift up to you the, 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 the disaster that has happened in, in Bastrop, in South Texas, in, in Mexico. Father, we pray that you have mercy on those who ha whom have lost their possessions and have had their possessions affected severely. Those who have even lost their lives and lost the lives of dear ones. Father, we will lift them up and ask that you would intervene and bring your comfort and your peace. Father, we pray for those who are volunteering to serve at this time to offer comfort and counsel and, and help in any way possible. We pray that they would be strengthened by your power, by your grace. And especially we ask and pray for those who will be taking not only human relief, but the relief of the gospel, the hope of the gospel with them. We pray that the gospel would be heard clearly and faithfully and strongly. And may you bring glory to yourself by bringing people to the knowledge of you and respond to you. Father, thank you for uh, those who have been with us for, for many years and whom you are taking away for at least for a season. Father, thank you for Jordan Jones. And Lord, thank you that she has come to know you in the midst of this congregation.
Father, we praise you that you are allowing her to grow in her academic experience and, and training. Father, we pray that you have your hand upon her. As she is studying at Baylor, Father, we pray that you would continue to grow her in the knowledge of you, that you would grow her in godliness, that you would grow her in, in faithfulness to you. Father, we pray that she would continue to serve you and be strengthened in her faith for you and to you. Father, we pray for those who are not with us this morning. We pray for those who are ill. We pray for those who are homebound. We pray for those who are traveling. Father, we pray that you would bless them. Even though we are not able to enjoy their presence this morning, we know that you can be with them and pray that they would be strengthened by your presence. Father, this morning we pray for all those who gather around the city of Austin to worship your holy name. We pray and intercede for believers and various churches who proclaim your gospel and proclaim it clearly and faithfully. We pray that you would be exalted in their midst and through them that you would make your name big. Father, we intercede and pray this morning for for First Baptist Church of Oak Hill. Father, we pray that you would strengthen them and provide for all their needs. Father, you know what they need most. And we pray that you would supply for them and, and provide for them above and beyond what they can imagine. Father, we pray for their elders and we pray for their pastor, Rob Satterfield, who preaches your word faithfully. Lord, we pray that you would encourage him. Remind him indeed that you are with them. And Lord, may their witness for you be strong and powerful and faithful. Father, we pray for us as a congregation. Pray that you would give us boldness with the gospel in personal conversations. We pray that we, have, we would have boldness with our neighbors and friends, that we would have the courage to bring up uh, things of, the, of, of Christ with them. And Father, we pray that you would be exalted through us, through the ministry of this congregation. Father, we pray for our tithes and offerings. Lord, we bring to you a portion of what you have given to us we pray that you would use these gifts for the spread of the gospel, both here in Austin through the ministry of this church, but also to the ends of the earth. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Jordan, we love you. Friends, let's continue to worship our God and King by bringing our tithes and offerings. If you are a guest, it's a time to turn in your guest cards. As we prepare to sing the next song, let's prepare our hearts uh, to hear from God, to hear a word from the living God. Let's continue to worship the Lord. People of a risen King delight to bring Him praise. Come all and tune your hearts to sing to the morning star of grace. From the shifting shadows of the earth, our eyes, our eyes to Him. Where steady arms of mercy reach to gather children in. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice, O Church of Christ, rejoice. 
Those who joy is morning sun to the weeping through the night. Come those who tell of battle won and those struggling in the fight. For his perfect love will never change and his mercies never cease. Follow us through all our days with certain hope of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice, O Church of Christ, rejoice. Young and old from every land, men and women of the faith. Come those with full or empty hands, find the riches of His grace. The third world, His people sing, shore to shore we hear them call. Truth that cries through every age, our God is all in all. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice, O Church of Christ, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice, O Church of Christ, rejoice. We have sung about his death, we have sung about his resurrection. Spirits of rejoicing should permeate the people of God. Friends, an analyst of the Olympic Games compared the um, difference between the U.S. and Chinese teams in Olympics. And he made the following observation, that uh, the Chinese team was able to win more gold medals in the team sports or the team competitions. Whereas the U.S. teams were able to acquire more, more gold medals in the competitions that were played individually. Are we surprised? The individual is the center of the spirit of the American life. Isn't it so? We worship the idea of standing out. Right? as individuals, standing out in a crowd, or uh, being yourself, or being different. We live in a culture and a day when we worship the idol of our own self. And this shows up in our pursuit of materialism, individualism, maximizing your self-potential. Why do we like buying things? Because we buy them for us. We like buying things. Why do we not like hanging out with people too much? 
And why do we prefer the me time? Because the me has been very busy during the week, and I just need some time for myself. And we have all these books about leadership. One of the things in, in some of these leadership books is an interesting phrase, everybody's a leader. Really? Why do we want to sell this idea everybody's a leader? Is it because we are consumed with our own selves? And we think of maximizing our own self-potential. To such a culture and world in which self is worshipped by many and all, the book of Ecclesiastes speaks a message of warning. This morning, I invite you to open the book of Ecclesiastes to chapter 4. Uh, we'll be reading from verse 7 to verse 16. If you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, you're encouraged to get a Bible provided in a chair in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 555. And for those of you who are visiting us this morning for the first time, we are currently going through a sermon series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning, we will look at the vanity of materialism, individualism, and human glory. Here's the word of the Lord for us from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, starting with verse 7 to verse 16. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you give us your word. And through it you nourish our souls. We ask and pray that even now by, by the presence of your Holy Spirit among us that you would speak to us. Speak to our hearts, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. The vanity of materialism, individualism, and human glory. Look at verse 7. Starting with verse 7, the preacher of Ecclesiastes presents to us a picture of a puzzled, uh, a puzzling a picture of a, of a man who, even though he had no family, he's consumed with all his toil. Look at verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. Now, some could say he's a hardworking man. 
high-energy person, a go-getter, a driven person. You would want to have this man on your team. You would want to have this man uh, as a part of your workforce. He'll get it done, whatever it takes. There's no end to his toil. Wouldn't you want to have such a person as an employee? But the preacher tells us why he's working so hard. Why is there no end to his toil? There's a reason, and the reason is a problem. Look at verse 8, the second half of verse 8. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he keeps toiling and working, not because he has a hard-working ethic, not because he is a driven man. No, he is, keeps working because he has a problem, and the problem is his eyes. And the problem of his eyes is that they're never satisfied with riches. That's a problem. That's the motivation why he's working so hard. Here's a man who covets for more and more, unsatisfied with what he has. I love how John Cotton, the Puritan preacher, Describe this man under the painfulness of covetousness. His covetousness is without uh, cause. It's without end. It's without satisfaction. It's without consideration. His coveting is without cause because this man is lonely. Really, he, he has nobody to provide for except for himself. Remember the parable of the rich ruler that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 12? A certain rich ruler has acquired lots of riches. One night, he had a talk with his soul. And he said to his soul, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Apparently, this this rich fooler was also a single lonely man. This man accumulated stuff for himself. He worshipped himself with no regard for worshipping God or no regard for helping others. So Jesus concluded the parable with, with this point, so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Coveting without cause. Coveting without end. Even though he had no heir, no one to, to work for, to leave stuff for, he kept working with no end to all his toil. His coveting was without satisfaction. Notice his eyes were never satisfied. Not only that, but he, 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 he realizes, or, or the preacher says that he is depriving himself of actually finding joy in life because of all his hard work. His coveting is also without consideration. He's not looking at the big picture of life. He's not pulling back and saying, what is life truly about? 
What is life worth living for? He never asked, who am I working for so hard? He's caught up in his work. He's never asking himself the bigger pictures, bigger, bigger questions of life. Friends, it's amazing how materialism has an ability to numb us from asking the deeper questions of life. It's amazing how materialism has an ability to numb us. And this indeed is the evidence of, of, the, of, the, of a vanity of life, that a lonely man with no family becomes slave of endless and restless labor to accumulate for himself more and more things. And at the end of the day, he's still not satisfied, he's still not able to enjoy life, and he's not able to leave it to anyone. Now, don't think that just because you're married and you have family, that you are excused from the point of this verse. The idea, the trap of being consumed with materialism and never being satisfied is a trap for all of us, regardless of the status of life, regardless of how many family members we have or how many heirs we could leave our things to. I love what Derek Kidner says, a covetous man, even with a wife and children, will have little time for them, convinced that he is toiling for their benefit, although his heart is elsewhere, devoted and wedded to his projects. We can't think, think of life without buying stuff. I want to give you a challenge. Try to take a fast from buying anything except the absolute necessities of life for a month. Just try. You'll see how hard it is. Food, gas, pay your bills, and that's it. Take a fast from buying stuff. We are so enslaved to buying stuff. And at the end of the day, at the end of the week, we're still not satisfied. Next week comes around, there's something else I need to buy. Why do you really need to buy it? Well, I need it. Why? I just need it. Do you really? So we're enslaved to getting more, and in order to pay for it, we have to work more. We have to work harder. Oh, friends, I want to, this, this verse challenges us. This passage of Scripture challenges us to face our enslavement to materialism. And our enslavement to being still unsatisfied, even though we keep adding things around our, our house. You realize that things that we buy don't satisfy. That's why we keep buying more things. Instead, let's work for things that satisfy. I love what God says in, in the book of Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. The vanity of materialism, enslaved to the desire of our eyes, eyes which are never satisfied. Friends, it's not that things are bad. The problem is our eyes are bad. Our hearts are bad. There's something broken with us that we just don't get satisfied with the things we have. And therefore, we want more and more and more. 
try to take a fast this week. Start this week for the next month. I know Christmas is coming, um, and that's going to be hard. Just try to take a fast from buying more stuff. Try to see how enslaved you are to the vanity of materialism. Here's a second vanity in this text. The vanity of individualism. The vanity of individualism. Um, Especially given the the picture of the single man in verses 7 and 8. Now in verses 9 through 12, the preacher makes his case for the benefits of living in relationships. In verse 9, when speaking about riches, the preacher said that more is not necessarily better. That was verse 6. We looked at that last week. When it comes to riches, more is not necessarily better. But when it comes to relationships, two are better than one. More is better than less. We should not miss the connection to these verse, between these verses that the lonely man is the man of verse 7 and 8. The one who was so busy working that he did not have time to develop relationships. He was living for himself. Living in relationships with others is better. It is better for several reasons. Uh, the NASB translates this verse in the following way. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. In other words, our work is actually more productive when we work with others rather than we are, when we are lone rangers. In verses 10 through 12, we get a few illustrations, four illustrations with the practical benefits why we should live in relationships, with relationships. Now, these pictures come from the realm of, of traveling, uh, companions, especially uh, in the ancient times, the, the joys and risks and dangers of traveling together. The first image in verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no, not another to lift him up. Now, friends, very practically, this could very easily apply very practically to people in old age. I've heard even some of our own deacons counsel some of the older saints in our own congregation who, who live alone and whose, whose bodies become more frail and it's actually more risky to live alone. If they fall in their own house and no one's there, depending on how they fall, there might be no one to pick them up. There might be no one to help them. So there's very practical benefits in, in this advice, this reason to have companions, to have friends, to, have, to live in relationships with others. But friends, this verse is not only for people who are old. Think of it especially in times of traveling in in ancient times when um, they didn't have flashlights, uh, let alone cars or or safety in in traveling. And oftentimes they they could fall in ditches, they could fall in holes. So people traveling alone were putting themselves at greater risk. Also, the cold nights, traveling alone, and they didn't have nice, comfortable hotels. Oftentimes, people would just sleep out. Remember Jacob, when he left his family, he slept, put his head on a rock, and he just slept out in the open air, the book of Genesis. Traveling has certain, I mean, uh, being in relationships, especially in this realm of traveling, has, has very practical benefits. At night, you sleep closer together so that the heat of the body of one person uh, goes over to the other person, and, and together they, they're able to, to survive the, the cold nights. Of course, the danger of, of, of robbers and people who would rob travelers. Traveling alone is, it was more dangerous than traveling with, in a team of people. Here the preacher is simply bringing very practical, very practical 
reasons why we should not think of our lives as solitary individuals, isolated from others. Get rid of the idea of living on your, by yourself, on your own, isolated in your own cloister. Then after three pairs of, of twos, it is better to, to be in two three times. The preacher moves on to this other picture of, of a threefold, of a threefold um, cord that is not quickly broken. Two is better than one, but a threefold cord is, is even better. The point here is not so much to talk about marriage. Sometimes preachers apply this text only to, uh, to speak to singles as if you should not remain single and you should get married. That has nothing to do with, uh, with really the, the big intention of this passage. It, it could be an application of it, but it doesn't speak only about being married. It really speaks about not living isolated, individualistic lives with broken relationships, severed from everybody else. I wonder, friend, if this morning you might be affected and infected by this culture of individualism that actually permeates our entire society. We fall into this whenever we live lives that are distant from others, whenever we don't let others too close to us, we don't let others be a part of our lives when we would rather be left alone than put up with some people and invest in relationships. The American culture is a culture where personal distance is the longest. You know, private space is the biggest. No culture prior to us has had so much private space as the American culture. Why? Because we're consumed with our own selves. And we, we like ourselves, we like life by ourselves. People who say, I don't need friends. Perhaps you're one of them this morning. Perhaps you've been hurt by friendships in the past. And rather than go through that pain again, you would rather live alone. Perhaps there are people who are insecure and afraid of opening up to people. Perhaps there are things they want to hide from others. Whatever the reasons are, these people are committed to live isolated and individualistic lives. Some people work so hard, they don't have time to develop relationships, meaningful relationships. Or they, they're so sinfully connected to their own individualistic lives that they just really, they, they find meaning in life by themselves. Again, if, you, if you're married, don't think that just because you have a family that somehow you are now absolved from this trap of individualism. You can still be enslaved to individualism even while married and with family because you refuse to develop relationships with others outside of your immediate family. It's only just you and your little tribe, and you refuse to actually branch out and live with others in relationships. Of course, living in relationships has its challenges, it's more easy to live by yourself. Nobody bothers you. You can do whatever you want. Right? But think, if you think about it hard enough, all the challenges of living in relationship with others are really challenges to our own sinful nature. Perhaps that's why we prefer to live isolated lives. 
because we don't like to be given the opportunity to deny our sinful nature, especially when, when others give us that opportunity, and especially when others cause us that opportunity. The vanity of individualism. Living with a self at the center of your worldview. The last vanity that we see here in this passage is the vanity of human glory. The final, uh, the final picture addressed in this text that the preacher of Ecclesiastes gives us is, um, is actually a picture of, of kings and their glory. And we have really we have two kings, two scenarios, two kingships, if you will. The first one is an old man who has been king for a long while, has lots of experience, and, and think of it through ancient times. In ancient times, old age was something to desire. I know these days in our society, not, none of us look to old age, sadly. But friends, that's foolish. It used to be that actually people who, 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 who acquired old age look forward to it. They had a lot of experience of life and wisdom. So old age was often often associated with wisdom and the experience of life. Well, couple that with the fact that this person is actually a king. He's an old king. But here the preacher compares him, an old king, with a young lad, with a youth, and he's poor. King, riches, young, experience of life, young, poverty, no experience of life. The preacher says, better, look at verse 13, better was a poor, wise youth than an old and foolish king. Why was he foolish? Because he no longer knew how to take advice. Here's isolationism. Here's individualism creeping up, even in old age. A man who's actually thinking by himself and not allowing others to challenge him, to give him advice. A king was supposed to have counselors, but he fired them. No longer willing to listen to advice, to take advice from others. Have you seen people like that? Now, we would say in our culture that, that the people who don't like to take advice from others are the youth, right? Teenagers. The, 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 the emergence into adulthood, right? Some of you are smiling. Yeah. I've been there, done that. But here is an old man, an old king, who has fallen in the trap of, of isolationism in his own mind, stubbornness in his own mind, not being willing to, to, to listen to others and to the, the advice of others. Well, friends, you know what this tells me and us? The ability or the, the lack of taking advice from others is not just an age issue. It's a heart issue. Young or old doesn't matter. But even if you were in the fame of glory, when you get to that point in which you trust yourself above all things, you trust your own wisdom, you are wise in your own eyes, and you're no longer willing to listen to advice from others and to hear what others have to say, when you're no longer allowing others to confront you, to suggest what you should consider doing, you have become isolated once again. And your own self is enthroned again. Oh, friends, one of the ways our sinful individualism manifests itself in our own lives is that we don't let others tell us what to do. We become set in our ways. 
stubborn in our ways. And this is not a matter of age. It's a matter of the heart. The, the other king that the preacher presents to us is a king who actually was able to emerge from poverty. Perhaps it's, it's a, this young lad. He emerged from, from poverty and from youth and from prison and, and followed the king. Some people say this might be a, a picture of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Perhaps. We don't know. Certainly Joseph lived that kind of pattern. And he was able to, and, the, and this king, this new king is able to have such a great followership. Everybody, the whole world is following him. And yet, even though he has a, a perfect reign with great human glory, we might say, look, he, he really gets it. Unlike the old king who didn't get it, the new guy, the young guy came and he really became popular. The whole world followed him. But here's a problem even with his kingship. After his generation passes, the people after him forget him. Even his glory, even though it was perfect, is forgotten. I want you to think with me for a second about um, one of the highest, most prestigious, if you will, um, positions that, that we might experience in, in our society. I thought of it, it might, may be the president of the United States. Right now we see the debates and the fight. Who's going to run for president? Who's got more money to, to put into their campaigns? And who's going who's to make it to be the president of the United States? Who's going to win this war of elections? And you would say, certainly whoever does that will, will be known, right? From, from mediocrity, he'll be, he'll be known, not only in this nation, worldwide. Perhaps the pinnacle, the top of the ladder of human glory. Think with me for a moment. Could you recite all the presidents of this nation? Unless you took a history class recently, or unless you have memorized the names uh, with some sort of mnemonic device to help you remember, unless you put all the names in a song that helps you remember the names, most likely you cannot even tell me half of the presidents of our nation. You forgot them. You forgot even their names, let alone what they've done and their glory. Do you see how fleeting human glory is? And if you think of your life as, as simply that which brings attention to yourself, to our own individual self, if it's all about me, even if you get there, even if you are in the, in the path of this young, poor man who becomes king and you have one of the greatest stories of transformation, even if that's your case, do you realize that even that glory is so shortly lived? So don't run after it. Don't run after the glory of the self. Rather seek to glorify God. Because do you realize that one of the key side effects of becoming a Christian is that we are actually seeking to live out the exact opposites of each of these vanities. We're not to think about our, our riches and accumulate more stuff here on earth. We're not supposed to put our trust and our, our, our pursuit of the things of this earth. We're not supposed to live individual lives isolated from others. We're not supposed to seek our own glory and fame, the glory of God. That's from the very beginning of the Old Testament, from Adam and ever since Adam and Eve sinned, 
we see the picture of the first two brothers. Cain chose to kill Abel. Why? Why would he rather be without his brother around? Because, because Abel's offering was better and Cain could not live with that? When God rescued his people from Egypt and God gave them the Ten Commandments, more than half of the Ten Commandments are directed to how men should live in community with other people. And then the, the famous command, love of Leviticus 19, 18, God commanded his people, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus used this commandment to, to, to wed it to the greatest commandment, which was love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to understand that this command to, to, pursue, to forsake the vanity of life and not to feel trapped into it is really a side effect of everything that the gospel changes in us. Prior to become a Christian, we have, we have been settled to live life for ourselves. We were the final arbiter of everything in our lives. We were the final standard the final judge of everything for ourselves. But we have also been corrupted in nature, a nature that did not care for God, not care for our fellow human beings. Actually, we oppose God. And even when we try to do good, even then we try to do it on our terms, on our ideas, not on God's terms. The Pharisees did it all the time. They tried to do things for God on their terms without loving God without really loving God. In our sin, we trigger the wrath of God against us. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need someone who would pay the penalty of, of our sin, the penalty of, of the wrath of God to come. Someone needed to, be, to take that wrath away from us, and that someone is Jesus. It is through Christ that he, the wrath of God can be taken away from us. It was put on Him, nailed to the cross, so that through him we might actually be brought back to God, experiencing the new life from God. And when this new life comes in us, we no longer find the, the pursuit of riches as somehow being the source of our satisfaction. And when, when that new life comes in us, we no longer find the me world, the self world, to be the ultimate community. We actually find joy and love in community with other believers. And isn't that what the church is supposed to be? A place where the gospel is displayed by the way we forsake our individualism, by the way we forsake pursuing our own interests first, by the way we forsake pursuing our own preeminence and glory. It is not about what how others serve us. It is how we are able to serve others and serve God together. I love how Paul in the book of Philippians says and speaks about the church as really as a picture of the gospel. For if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one another and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How different are these verses than the vanities exposed in the book of Ecclesiastes? How different are these verses from the worship of the self that's characterizing our culture? Oh, friend, let the power of the gospel enable you to avoid the vanity of materialism. Let the power of the gospel enable you to avoid the vanity of individualism. Let the power of the gospel enable you to avoid the vanity of human glory. Friends, I pray that by the power of the gospel, we as a church might live a different path than the path exposed by the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you that in Christ, you have provided a way for us to be rescued from the enslavement of these vanities, the vanity of materialism, the vanity of individualism, the vanity of of human glory. Oh, great God, we pray that you you would work the power of the gospel in our lives. Father, as we have been reminded of the cross of Christ today, of what he has forsaken, of what he was able to say no to, to his own life, so that we might be rescued from the enslavement to sin. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would work out this power of the gospel in our lives daily, especially in these vanities that we have heard today. We pray that we would be a people rescued, redeemed, that we would be a display of the power of your salvation. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. What wonderful good news that we are no longer enslaved to that kind of empty lifestyle.